excited uh, to share with you all this morning. Um, I know last week we had such a fantastic family service, and I thought the kids did so well with all the things they put together. Really great time. And, and Timmy did a great job as well. <laughs> and uh, But uh, the week before that, um, I just had the real privilege of speaking about um, a culture of grace. And out of that wonderful prophetic word that Greg Haslam brought to our church, where he saw this picture of a steam engine coming off the railway track and into a railway siding, where it's, um, the, the, the maker of the steam engine was going to fix it and put things together and get it ready for the next leg of the journey. And he said he felt that that was a picture for this church. And um, <clears throat> what I shared those a uh, couple of weeks ago was that I felt something of what God was fixing and repairing as he prepares us for the wonderful journey he has is that he wants us more and more to become a people and, uh, who understand his grace in our lives. That in, when people walk into this church, more and more they'll understand what a culture of grace looks like. And that starts with all of us as individuals. God starts to put his finger on things in our lives where he wants to bring us into freedom. And I said that sometimes it's like we're living in two camps. We've got one foot in a, a, a culture of rules and legalism and and fear and punishment, and another foot in an understanding of God's freedom and his forgiveness. Um, but God wants us to have both our feet in one camp, that we can walk together into that wonderful freedom that he has for us. Because I said, sometimes we have this thing where we are saved, we are hidden in Christ, and yet we think as if we are sinners, as if we condemned, as if we are under the law. And that's not how God wants us to live. I was trying to think of an analogy um, also about it because it's, it's like when you move from one country to another. Um, 14 years ago, we moved from South Africa and came to live in England. And if I have to think about living in South Africa, I was born and raised in a small town um, in South Africa. And um, there were so many wonderful things in my country that I really love. There's such a diversity and a vibrancy in the people. Um, there's an exuberance for life, and the, the, the land is a, has breathtaking beauty. It's an amazing place. And there were things that I really found difficult in my land. There was prejudice and injustice and things like that, which were, which were not nice parts of when I was growing up there. But it's a kind of a place when, once it's in your heart, it kind of somehow defines who you are and it really inspires you. But God moved us to come and live in this nation, in this country. And um, so I had to learn, as with my family and many of you who've come to a new nation, I had to learn to embrace a new culture, new etiquette, new customs, and even a new citizenship. And I've made many a faux pas getting the wrong things, like the time we first moved across and uh, our boiler broke in our, in our house. And in South Africa, you call a boiler a geezer. And I remember phoning the plumber and saying, excuse me, we've got an old geezer up in the roof that's leaking. And he was very confused by that until we both worked out, oh, you mean a boiler? <laughs> we thought, what was an old man doing up in my roof? And uh, so there are things when you move to a new culture, it takes its time to, I could tell you lots of other stories. 
But I think like one of the things I've had to get used to, which I think is a wonderful thing about England, is you have to learn to be patient in the queue because the teller will be chatting to an old lady about her arthritis, and you'll just stand patiently and wait. And uh, I think that's a wonderful quality, and there's many different things. I've had to get used to the fact we were talking with some friends last night about sometimes the fear that is in the culture in South Africa with crime, and I've had to get used to being able to walk down the street and not be worried about being mugged. It's a very different experience. So I was trying to think of this, if that analogy, when you go from one place to another, you've got to adjust in some ways. And um, it's a bit like that when we get saved. We're in this kingdom of darkness before we get saved, and then we come into this completely new kingdom. And we have to learn new ways, new customs, a new culture that is so different from where we came from. And it takes time. It takes time to unlearn those ways and to learn something of God's ways. Um, I, I was thinking also when Moses, when he led the Israelite nation out of Egypt, they were a nation of slaves. And they had been thinking and behaving like slaves for nearly 400 years. So you can imagine a slave mindset was pretty much entrenched in that whole nation of people. And I think that's a really hard thing to do, to lead a people who have a slave mentality out into a wilderness where there are no taskmasters, no boundaries, and you say, I'm promising you a new land where you can have complete freedom. Because it didn't take very long before they were worshipping a gold calf and saying, oh, we prefer the garlics and leeks of Egypt. So Moses had a real tough time taking people from a slave mentality into the freedom that God had for them. And I suppose that's why in a very practical way he gave them rules to live by, to teach them about his ways, to give them boundaries. And so the story of the Exodus is a bit of the story of their journey from slavery to freedom. And the Israelite nation went through all these cycles where they would repent and change, and they'd go back to their old slavery mentality, and then they would change, and it was this journey of transforming them. Uh, I suppose, in a way, that story of the Israelites is like a shadow of something of the story of what God does with us when we get saved. He takes us out of darkness, out of slavery, into freedom and into light. And uh, Paul, in Romans 6, he explains um, that before we knew Christ, he says we were actually slaves to sin. And I suppose a slave is someone who's under the control or dominion of someone else or some power. Supposed to be a slave to sin means you're really powerless to do what you want and you almost do the bidding <clears throat> of those appetites and desires that indulge your selfishness or your immorality in you. But this is what Paul says in Romans 6 verse 17. He says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, in other words, the gospel. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, slave of righteousness doesn't sound like a very positive thing. You were a slave of sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. But he goes on in that verse, that chapter, and he says, I'm only using that analogy because 
Um, you're very weak-minded, and it'll make sense to you. He's a bit patronizing to them. <laughs> He's saying, you were a slave of sin, and now you're a slave of righteousness. In other words, you want to do the right thing now. That's the thing that compels you and motivates you. And uh, he goes on to say, he says, when you were a slave of sin, you did things that you now are ashamed of, and those things that you did led to death in your life. Death in our lives, yes, there's physical death, but death comes into our lives when we do things that don't please God. They come into death into our relationships, when we don't forgive, when we hold um, animosity, when we don't trust. Death in our emotional well-being, we become broken inside. Death in our physical bodies, and death in our friendship with God. Death is the fruit or the result of being a slave to sin. I suppose you can think of it like this, because just as there are physical laws that govern the world that we live in, in this physical world, um, there are also spiritual laws. So imagine, this is quite a high building, and I know Derek, when he fixed it, fixes the lights and things. He's got this very tall ladder that can go up there. So imagine when they I decide, mm, I'm going to climb up there because I fancy trying an, a bit of flying. And I climb to the top of the ladder and I get ready and I think, imagine if I flap my arms really, really, really hard and I jump off that ladder, I'm sure I'm going to fly. Well, no, there's a law called gravity. And that law says that if you jump off a very high building, you will fall flat on your face, which is not really a very clever idea. There's a physical law that governs this physical world. If I went up to that wall and then I gave it a punch like this, it might, might, I don't know if it will, it might leave a dent in the wall, but I'd also probably break my hand because there's another law, which I think is the Newton's law, second law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So there are laws that sometimes we don't even know how to verbalize them, but you don't go around punching walls because you know it's going to hurt. We don't know how to express those laws, but they are there in the universe. And so we navigate our whole lives around those things. You just don't jump off buildings because you know the law of gravity is there. And so in the same way, there are spiritual laws in the world that we live in. And Moses, when he was trying to teach these Israelites who'd come out of the slavery mentality, remember Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So when he was trying to explain to them some spiritual laws about what happened with Adam and Eve, he put it to them like this. He wanted to explain a spiritual law, and he said that God forbade Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's how Moses explains. He's trying to explain to the Israelite people a spiritual law. He was trying to explain to them that God made man and woman to live in the world in harmony with him and with each other, and that this harmony would be sustained if we lived in a loving, honest, and pure way. But should we choose, because God gives choice in all of our lives, should we choose to live differently and instead live with deceit and 
impurity and selfish, which, selfishness, which is evil, that there would be consequences and that would be death. That was a spiritual law that, that Moses tried to explain to the Israelites happened right in the beginning with, with the first man and woman. So Paul takes up on this and he explains it in Romans 5 verse 12. He says, through one man entered, uh, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not such a nice amen, but it's true, talks. And um, he says in, in Romans 6 verse 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, we live under a spiritual law that says, if you sin, sin leads to death. If I jump off the building, I'm under gravity. If I sin, it breaks my relationship with God, it isolates me from Him, and it leads to physical death and death in every other way in my life. But now, I want you to imagine a different kind of physical world. Imagine if I did jump off the roof and I just wafted down like a feather. Imagine I did punch the wall and my hand just went through it like it was a soft curtain. Well, I'm sure you'd say, I don't think you're on planet Earth. I think you're on another planet where the rules are different and it doesn't work like that way. Well, that's kind of what it's like when we step from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is so radically different. You'll think, it's, I'm not on earth. What is this? It is too good to be true. That's what it's like. The spiritual laws that you were under that sin led to death don't apply in this new kingdom. There's something so much better. And uh, in Romans 5, verse 17 to 21, Paul does this thing where he compares the spiritual laws of the dark kingdom, of darkness, to the kingdom of light. And I'm just going to paraphrase it, and I really want to encourage you, if you want to read Romans 5, 6, 7, you'll get a good overview of all this theology, but I'm going to just say it simply. Um, it's basically Paul says, one man's sin opened the door for everyone after him to sin and to experience death. But another man's gift opened the door for everyone to experience a wonderful, generous life. The first man, Adam, opened the door for us to sin and death. Christ came. He's like the second Adam. Paul calls him the second Adam. And he opened the way for us to have life. Do you know Eugene Peterson? He, he wrote a very wonderful, I don't suppose it's a translation, but it's a paraphrase of the Bible that's in a lovely colloquial uh, way of putting things in a book called The Message. And I'd like to just read what, how he puts it. He says, Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did wrong, and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God 
and put many in the right. All that passing laws did was make more lawbreakers. Remember what I said last time I preached? I said God gave the law, not because the law can save us. The law just makes us aware how foolish we are and we can't keep the law. It shows us how we need a saviour. Um, but Eugene goes on to say, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. But grace, because God is putting everything together again under, through the Messiah, invites us into life. A life that goes on and on and on, world without end. In other words, if you are in Christ, then your sins, your failings, your mistakes are forgiven. They are washed away, pardoned. You're no longer under that rule of death and sin and the death penalty. Instead, you've now been given a new standing with God and he sees you as right with him. So many Christians are right with him and we still think we, he's not happy with us. It's a lie. You are right with God and he is smiling on you. He sees you as his son or daughter, the heir to all his wealth. We have a father who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Every resource in heaven on earth is made available to you because it says, later on it says, that we are made heirs with Christ. We inherit the fullness of what he has for for us. And he looks on us. When he looks on every single one of us, he delights in us and he smiles upon us. How many of us in our mind's eye have a picture of God frowning on us? have a picture of God angry with us. Well, that's not the kingdom of light. That's an idea you've got from here and you've taken it with you. We've got to unlearn that old land, unlearn that old kingdom, and start thinking like sons and daughters, not like slaves. You see, we've got a new spiritual law now. New spiritual law says, my sins are forgiven. You take one minute You think of something you did yesterday, said this week, did that you're not proud of. It's forgiven. It's gone. It's dealt with. There are going to be things you'll do next week. They are forgiven. They are gone. They are dealt with. In this kingdom, there's a, a law that says, I am not condemned. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. You know, I've been saved... I don't know, since I was about 10 years old. But it was only about seven years ago that I had revelation of this thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You do not walk around with guilt when you are a Christian. There is no guilt. Christ took your guilt. He took your punishment. You can be free. You can be not condemned. And instead of death... We get life forevermore. Life that goes on and on and on. You know, we will die. I know I'm going to die. And as you get older, you face that fact more. 
you think about your mortality. I've, I've started noticing that. But the reality is these bodies will wear down. But I don't have to fear dying because I know where I'm going to. I know that my spirit will live on with God. The, the fear of death has been broken. This is what Paul says, how he kind of puts this in Romans 8, verse 14 to 16. He says, this is about our new identity. We're talking about being in here, how we change our thinking. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do you know if you are God's child? Well, the Spirit inside you shows you and tells you. And he says this thing, this is a very interesting thing. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He says God adopted you as his children into his family. And you don't think of God as the taskmaster with the whip. You think of him as Abba. And if you go to Israel, different people around the world call Daddy different names. In Israel, Daddy is Abba. A little baby will say Baba, Abba, Abba, will be the way that they will say Daddy. Paul is saying, you have been saved and adopted by your Daddy. Now, he could have chosen Father, but he chose Daddy. He's trying to tell us something. God's relationship with us is sweet and intimate. It's precious. It's not the, the, a harsh judge. It's a, it's a daddy. It's a father. And he goes on to say, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. So here Paul is very clearly saying that one of the ways that we begin to think like the old covenant, like the kingdom of darkness, is that when we give in to fear, he says you were not saved in slavery so that you may become a slave again to fear. And this is the thing when I said I wanted to speak a bit more about what being a culture or becoming a people of grace looks like. And as I've been praying this week, I had so many things I thought, oh, it should be it should be that I should speak about, and that, and that, and that. And then I eventually I said, oh God, okay, what do you what do you want me to say? There's so many things I could talk about. And I just felt God say, people are bound up with fear. Fear is not part of my kingdom. Fear is not part of being a people of grace. And I want my people to be set free from fear. And that's what I want to speak about. That's one of the mindsets we have to break off. It's part of the old. We've got to move into the new that God has. Because you know what? I believe that some people never fulfill the calling and the things that God has for, has for their lives simply because every time you try to go forward, the devil uses fear to stop you. Every time you get a good idea and you think, I'm going to do this. And then you go, oh, but what about this and this and this and this? And oh, no, no, no. Oh, I'm, I'm just such a stupid person. I can't do it. That is what the devil does every time you want to advance and do something new. Satan uses fear 
to stop us from enjoying life. And he paralyzes us into retreating. Think of how many times, do you remember when Joshua was told to go and take the promised land? I think it's about three or four times God says to him, be strong and courageous. And he says it again, be strong and very courageous. Because he knew that for Joshua to go in and take that land, he was going to need courage. And every kind of fear was going to come against him that he couldn't do it, that this wasn't going to be possible. And the devil doesn't want us to move into the fullness of God's promises for us. Whatever God has promised you, the devil is going to come with fear to try and stop you. And when God leads you into something new, uh, or he leads you to make a bigger commitment in your life, you may and you probably will begin to experience fear. How I want to say, though, that... Um, I didn't say this, did I? Because I'll, am I going to still say it later? I didn't say this. But I do want to say that fear never, ever, 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 ever comes from God. There's one source for fear, and that is the devil. We don't entertain what he brings. We, we are not interested in fear. Fear is not from God. So if God is telling you to step out and to do something, put your trust in him and go forward. I mean, we certainly don't want to move into the flesh and be presumptuous and just saying, oh, I'm doing this, I don't care. That's not really God's way or it's, or it's not God's timing. But when you know God is moving you, step with boldness. Do not let fear begin to, to um, hinder you. Because becoming a people of grace means being courageous because we know that God is faithful. And it means stirring one another up to good deeds. And it means speaking hope and promise over each other's lives. You don't have to... You can just go into the world and you will watch the news, switch the news on, and you can become fearful. You can just go into your workplace and be intimidated by the atmosphere there and become fearful. We don't need to also bring fear upon each other here. This is where we are to inspire hope and courage and and a sense of strength in each other here in this place. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Um, he is so fearful, he's meant to be out on the battlefield, and uh, no one can find him anywhere. And a wine uh, press is, I suppose, where they trampled the grapes. It would have been a round thing. And he, he was busy threshing wheat in a wine press, which shows me he was so afraid, usually you would thresh wheat in an open space, that he was doing it hiding away from the enemies because they were trying to plunder all their resources. And God says to Gideon, where are you? He says, rise up, mighty warrior. Do you think he felt like a mighty warrior when he was hiding in the wine press? Well, I think God wants to say to many of us today, he says, rise up. Rise up. What is the thing that God is putting in your heart? What is the thing that he's stirring in within you? Don't hide in the wine press anymore. Rise up. Rise up. Is it to do with a relationship? Is it to do with your work? Is it to do with something that you, you feel God has put in your heart, a gift? Use it. Don't shrink back. God is saying, rise up, mighty warrior. Because not only does fear cause us to retreat, 
it also brings torment to us. And you surely, you can't enjoy life and be tormented at the same time. It just doesn't go together. God wants us to have joy in our lives. You know 1 John 4 verse 18, I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version because it just expands it a bit. It says, there is no fear in love. Dread does not exist. But full-grown, mature, perfect love turns fear out of doors and expels every trace of terror. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment. No longer in the punishment realm. And so he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love, has not yet grown into love's complete perfection. John is saying that one of the key ways that we deal with fear in our lives is we ask the Lord to tell us and remind us how much he loves us, that we are his sons and his daughters, and he loves us. You see, fear doesn't have a place where you know that you loved. Fear doesn't have a place where you know you're not going to be punished. Fear doesn't have a place when you know that God is looking out for you and everything will turn out well. That's what Romans 8 verse 28 says. All things work to the good of those who love God and accord according to his purpose. All things. All things. Everything will turn out well. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think that's cloud cuckoo land. No, if you can think like that over here. But in the new kingdom, all things turn out well when we believe in God and trust in him. Because I believe that so much of our joy in our lives, enjoying our children, our marriages, our family, our work, our homes, um, just the blessings of God, it's robbed from us because of fear. We're worrying, one day this might happen to me, or one day, what if this does, or whatever. We can't live like that. 90% of our fears never even materialize, but we live fearful. It's not from God. It's not from God. It comes from the joy robber, Satan. Perfect love casts out fear. You know, I love Jesus. He tried to convinced his disciples how much God loved him so much. He said, you know, God has even taken time to count how many hairs you have on your head. Some of us have more than others. But God knows every single hair on our heads. He knows the detail of our lives. Now, if he's interested in that seemingly insignificant detail, how much more is he not interested in every part of your life, every detail is of concern and of interest to him. So I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you are afraid of? Are there any areas in your life that are stifled because of fear? And Satan is always going to bring fear at various times in our lives. It's one of his major weapons. And it's not just a pop gun that goes... He often blast us with a cannon of it. But I want to say the Bible gives much more answers to it than we don't have to be afraid of fear. We don't have to be afraid of Satan. A simple little phrase that we can all learn off by heart, and I'm sure all of you do know it already. Submit to God 
Resist the devil and he will flee. He'll be out of here. Don't you love the story of Martin Luther? He was lying in bed one day and he felt this horrible presence in his room and it was like a presence of fear. And he sat up and he, he realized it was the devil. He said, oh, it's you. And he went back to sleep. I think that's how we need to be about Satan and about the fears he brings. Oh, it's you. Because we have a God who is for us. We have a God who's given us everything we need for life and godliness. A God who's there championing us on. Submit to God just means, won't you just hand this thing over to him and say, I trust you, God? That's what it means. Saying, I'm tired of carrying this thing and feeling like I've got to worry about it. We are warriors with an O instead of warriors. We need to hand things over to God. We need to trust him. I don't know about you, I'm a very visual person, but I know the smell of fear. I wake up some mornings and it's there, it's greeting me as I wake up in the morning and I just know, I almost visualize it like like the devil coming with a parcel knocking on my door, he's standing at my door going, <laughs> and I go, oh, I know the smell of you, I'm not, you're not even coming into my day, get out of here, and I resist him, I won't even entertain. Do you know what fear feels like? Do you know what it smells like? That tight thing around your chest, that buzzing in your head? You just say, oh no, that's not even coming in my, in my life. It's not coming into my heart. It's not, come, it's not even part of my world. I'm in this kingdom now. That's part of the old. It's not even coming. I resist it. I've trusted this thing to God and I'm resisting your, your uh, invitation to fear. Because I think what fear tries to do is it robs us of our backbone and it makes you cower. Fear makes you lose perspective and things always seem much bigger than they really are. Stand up to fear and say no and rest in God's love for you. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I believe God works really gently to bring us out of bondage into liberty. And when you've, if you've had, being afraid of something and you really want to be free from that, sometimes you just have to face your fear. You just have to say, I'm calling you what you are. You, This thing makes me afraid. You can say that. David said that in the Psalms. He said, these things make me afraid. Paul said that. He said, I was, um, I, I, we, we had fears and fears, what did he say? Fears within and and pressures without, there were real fears that came upon them. But they, nonetheless, they decided to submit and to surrender those to God. And all of their stories, all of their writings show how God was victorious in that place. Face your fear. Don't run away from it. Let Jesus take you by the hand and he will help you to deal with that thing and to, to make it, um, get its right perspective. So in preparing for this, I'm just going to close off now, but I, cause I really feel I'd love to pray for people today because, you know, when God says he wants to deal with fear, he really wants to deal with it. I'm sure he's been dealing with it already in some of your hearts, and he wants to nail it. But I, I thought I would go and look in the Bible and just look up every reference I could find on fear. I counted 205 
So it's obviously an important subject in the Bible. But um, I think the Bible is the best perspective on fear that you'll ever read. And as I begin to look at each reference, I kind of uh, I scanned it. I didn't read any of us saw generally. Uh, as I began to read this, I began to laugh when you see what the Bible says about fear. Do you know that 80% of those uses of the word fear in the Bible were fear God? 80% when it talks about fear, it says fear God, which is biblical language for honor God, revere him with your life, hold him in the highest esteem, for he's the one who holds your life in his precious hands. When we don't know God, we, we can be fearful of him. But Paul says, remember, God is not a taskmaster. Don't think like a slave. Think of God as Abba, as Daddy, and you as his beloved child. Think of him as the one who delights in you. And then the other 15% of the verses on fear were, don't fear, don't be afraid. God is watching over you. Don't be fearful. God is with you. That's all, that's all that dealt with about fear. And the last 5% <clears throat> were people who were being honest about their fears. But every verse that followed with that was a pro- proclamation of God's goodness amidst their fearful situations. So if I had to make a summary of the Bible's perspective of fear based on this little simple survey, it would be, Paul your energy and focus into loving God and trusting him and always remember that he loves you and he's watching over your life. And in times when you feel overwhelmed and afraid, remind yourself that he will make everything work out well for you. That's the Bible's view on fear. Uh, I don't want to embarrass Matt, but I... We've had a testimony of walking through that brain tumor with Matt. And you know, everything in you could tend itself towards fear when you, when you think of the possibilities of what could happen to your child. I want to say it was a bizarre thing. Sometimes Andrew and I would say, we've just got such peace. What is it? It's like we should be panicking and we've got peace. Well, I can only say it's because God... He says, everything will work out well. And you just have to have that in your heart and you go, okay, we're going to get through this. And I'm so delighted we're going for a six-month checkup tomorrow. But I feel such peace. I'm expecting everything to work out well. We can think like that. Well, you know, we, we feel like we can get quite cynical. We can go, geez, you shouldn't think like that, actually. That's quite naive. No, that's quite darkness thinking. God says, think and believe that I am able to do all that you are hoping and trusting for. Will you dare to believe me? Will you dare to trust? But we're going to deal with fear today because fear makes us think like that. And uh, as I was praying, I did feel, um, I know I didn't chat with the antecedents, okay, if I read some ministry, is that okay? Um, but I am... I, um, yeah, I just felt these things, I felt when I was praying and preparing, I, I did feel some specific things of fear that maybe, maybe this is something that you under. Um, and 
I'd like to ask if you want to come for prayer. And we've got a ministry team who want to just pray for you. And when they pray for you, I want to suggest we pray in this way. It says, submit to God. You pray and say, God, I'm giving this thing to you. Resist the devil. We pray that you stand firm and you resist that thing. And, uh, and then that God will come and reveal his love to you. That you'll become mature in understanding how much you are loved. He loves you so, so much. But these are some of the things. I feel like there's some people here that are, have a fear of death. And, uh, you know, we all might at times fear that. But I feel like there's someone here that that is a real, has a panic thing in your life. That there's someone here who has shame, feeling of shame in their life what they've done. There's um, someone who's afraid here of being a disappointment to others. There's someone here who has panic attacks. But God's saying that that's something he wants to set you free from. And uh, I felt there's someone who is a, has a fear of God in not a good way, that you just don't trust him. You just don't really believe that he's really out for your own interests. And then I felt there was a fear of rejection. And the last one I felt was someone that has a fear for your children, a fear for your children's lives. And I, I've got my mom's here today. She's nice to have her for a bit. But I always remember something my mom said when we were teenagers. Well, we're teenagers, mom. And she said she was so worrying about all of us and thinking, oh, what about this one? And what about this one? And she just felt the Holy Spirit say, I love your girls more than you do. And I can look after them. Isn't that right, Mom? And it's amazing how we, God has really watched over our lives. And she trusted us over to God. God loves our children even more than we do. And maybe sometimes we fear for their lives. We can trust that God will let all things work out well. Even if they're far from God, it's okay. God's in control. And he will make a way for them. So, you know, these are some things I was praying and I felt when I was praying. But you might have thought, oh, but there's something in my life that I'm fearful about. And Helen hasn't said it, so maybe God doesn't want to deal with it. No, God's just telling you directly. You didn't need me to tell you. So I want to invite you. I don't care if the whole church comes up this morning because we all have fears. I don't know how best to facilitate it. Oops, but is it okay if maybe to invite people up? So maybe if you're feeling in response to one of these things, we've got a team that are going to pray. Why don't you come forward? And if you're part of the team that's praying and you feel you need prayer, then you can be prayed for. But we're going to ask God to break those things over, over your lives. So, you know, if God is saying something, right now there's a spirit of intimidation and fear saying, don't stand up because other people will see. Well, that's just fear. So I've just told you, resist fear and come up to the front and let God deal with that thing in your life. I, I, um, we, in our, our staff meeting, I said I was struggling with the fear of rejection because um, sometimes I, I, I love 
I love people and I always want to open my heart to people. And then when sometimes when people leave the church, then I get a little bit sore inside and I feel like tender and that's like a rejection thing that I, and I've got to say, oh God, help me to keep my heart open. I want to keep my heart open because people are so wonderful and lovely. And that's where God's got to help me with the culture of grace to learn to keep my heart soft because not to let hurts make my heart um, build walls. Do you understand? It might be different for you. I don't know what it is for you. But I, since I shared that, God has been doing such a healing in my heart. And it was just one thing I said, and God's been doing a healing. It doesn't take much. This takes courage. Be strong and courageous. Let us pray for you. God will do it. And come. I invite you, come forward if you need prayer. We just lay hands on you, and we pray for that thing to be broken. Come forward. Be strong and courageous. And those of you who are going to be praying, all you do is lead the person in a prayer of saying, I I submit this thing to God. I'm trusting you. I'm choosing to trust you, God. And you pray for them to resist the devil and to know God's love. Thank you, God.